Hey, this is Kate Nocera, and you're listening to No One Knows Anything, the BuzzFeed News Politics Podcast. And every week we talk about this insane time in American politics and try and break down a few stories, you know, to make sense of things. And I'm Catherine Miller, BuzzFeed's political editor, back on the show again this week, though this time I'm filling in for Charlie Warzel, who is currently in Austin, Texas, covering the Alex Jones custody hearing, uh, which has taken on larger overtones, and we will talk to him later in the show. Um, So, Catherine, what else is going on today? So this week, we we are going to be talking a little bit about Bill O'Reilly's firing from Fox News, which is a big deal in the media world as well. And then we also, Kate, you and I are going to be talking a little bit about how much we really should be reading into the results of these special elections in Georgia, Kansas and other places. And just so everyone knows, it's 11 o'clock on a Thursday morning. And I'm telling you that because by the time you listen to this, who knows what else could have happened. Bill O'Reilly of Fox News was fired this week, and joining us to talk about that is Stephen Perlberg, who covers media and politics for BuzzFeed News. Stephen, what's happening over there? Yeah, it's been an interesting few days uh, over at Fox News. Um, So basically, this all got started uh, a couple weeks ago when the New York Times reported that Bill, uh, five women had settled with Bill O'Reilly and Fox News for $13 million. Uh, some of those allegations had been over sexual harassment and, and other things. Um, some of those allegations had already been out there for like a decade, but there were some fresh allegations, and this sparked an advertiser boycott, a lot of media attention and protests, and this all sort of uh, became this like groundswell. And over the past two weeks, Uh, The Murdoch family, which controls 21st Century Fox, which owns Fox News, uh, have been trying to figure out what to do about this. And ultimately, yesterday, they decided to um, separate uh, from Bill O'Reilly. And uh, he was sort of on this vacation um, that that uh, that they said was preplanned, but it was sort of funky, the the timing. And uh, (laughs) yeah, that that's where we are now. um, But it was pretty wild. I feel like I like I've been hearing we've been hearing things about Bill O'Reilly and his behavior for years now, right? Like, yeah, this uh, is not a new phenomenon. So Bill O'Reilly is like the least liked person within Fox News. I mean, in, in terms of just um, he's like this towering figure. He has long had the top ratings uh, at Fox News and kind of thought of as this invincible figure. But in terms of the sexual harassment allegations, he settled a very well-known uh, suit in 2004. Th- that one was like uh, there were recordings of him on the phone. It was this, you know, very, very uh, that tabloid. That was a big deal in the tabloids. Yeah, a big like, deal in like the tabloids. Um, and then, but there, there are sort of fresh allegations, and even including too that one of the big things with this, and in one of the the major things in the New York Times report was that they had that there were two settlements. After, right. after Roger Ailes, who formerly ran Fox News, after he after his exit, right? Uh, yeah, and that's good context as well because Roger Ailes, who used to run Fox News, had his own sexual harassment scandal this summer. Um, so, that, which led to his ouster. Which was in, not you know, not to downplay anything about the O'Reilly's allegations, but like the Ailes stuff was the sort of this massive, like heart of darkness. Yeah. Experience. Right. Yeah, but that you know, right. and that's indicative of the kind of environment you know that that was allowed yeah, at, that's true. At, at Fox News and sort of his you know the company that that he ran. Um, but yeah, so so in terms of O'Reilly, when the Murdochs uh, started looking 
into this again in the last few weeks since the Times stories. I think the Times reported that there were even more uh, women that came forward. Yes. Um, so that, again, uh, made it potentially easier for them to, to, to get rid of him. But I, the, big, the big deal for the Murdochs was, like, they – you have this like generational thing going on where you've got Rupert Murdoch, sort of old media mogul, who was, it was reported, leaning toward keeping Bill O'Reilly. It looked from the beginning of the scandal like they were going to try to hang on to him. And then the sort of younger James Murdoch and his brother Lachlan, who uh, towards the end, it was reported that they were um, more leaning towards of getting rid of O'Reilly. And they were sort of the, the anti-Ales camp as well. Um, so it's this really interesting media mogul generational it's shift. It's not totally clear to what exactly. There's a few other factors going on right now. There's uh, the Department of Justice or, or the, basically the federal attorneys, U.S. Attorney's Office has been looking into Fox for the way they handled uh, whether they disclosed uh, harassment settlements to investors. And that's that's a big deal. Right. And it had been reported that they are giving immunity to Fox's former chief financial officer in order to to, to learn more about this. So this is something that's really hanging it's over Fox. Yeah, it's really, it's really happening. There's that. They, the Murdochs currently are trying to buy out the rest of Sky News, which is a British broadcaster, uh, for $11.7 billion. And that has to go through a big regulator. And so one of the things that the regulator looks at is how the company is governed. So there's that. There's the very bad PR of 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 another <laughs> harassment yeah. issue and then kind of fourth there's also they they also had had this ad boycott right Stephen knows a little bit more about this but the the how big an effect that is on the bottom line is yeah Fox went through this a few years ago with Glenn Beck where if you remember his show towards the end before they canceled it he it was like all buy gold ads and this sort of bizarre <laughs> these bizarre advertisers and so that was what was happening to O'Reilly in like the days uh, after a bunch of big brands ditched. Fox made, you know, they were very adamant that there was no immediate ad revenue hit. And like the ad buyers and ad sales people that I know explain how, explain how Fox can take ads and put them in other shows. And The term for this is re-express. Yes, that was the new they term that Fox created. re-express the ads elsewhere. It's very, it's very, uh, it's like the United thing about taking the guy off the plane. They, they re-expressed yeah, they the re-express- ad elsewhere. Uh, which, which, which they can do and sort of stem immediate financial losses, but long term, like you, it is a problem. And the advertiser boycott was real. The other thing is that adver- advertisers needed a reason to return to that show, and it wasn't just going to be Bill O'Reilly's two week vacation. This in is Italy. over. Yeah, yeah. Like they needed, fun. <laughs> yeah. so it needed to be a suspension. It needed to be some sort of action. And now I expect that those advertisers will. Happily return to, to the to, APM yeah. hour. Yeah. Tucker Carlson. Tucker. Right, yeah. it's still going to be huge. I mean, an, another Fox News source said something to me about how, like, you know, a- anyone can can get certain ratings at APM on on Fox News. The point that they were making was like, this is a huge platform. A lot of people still watch it. Yeah, O'Reilly was the king of cable news, but you know, we'll see the po- whether the whether the power of the time slot or you know uh, trumps that. Do you think, um, I, mean, I mean, just over the summer, Gretchen Carlson, who was a Fox News personality speaking out about Roger Ailes and then Megyn Kelly, kind of like what what started this sort of domino effect where people started speaking out and coming out of the woodwork? I think you can definitely trace it back to the Ailes saga and, and Gretchen Carlson. I mean, she really got, got things going there. And, um, you know, uh, w- one of the things that, 
that had been reported as well in terms of Megyn Kelly's exit was that one of the reasons she decided to ultimately leave Fox, and they were trying to keep her uh, and and willing to pay a lot. Um, one of the reasons was that you, Bill, o- the, the degree to which O'Reilly came to the defense of Ailes, and um, you know she didn't feel welcome uh, at the network anymore. And there are a, a lot of women, I'm sure, there who were really uh, adamant that O'Reilly leave and that the culture actually changes for the better, which is something that the Murdochs promised after Ailes' departure. So right. if they were to keep, if they were to have kept him here. I don't know how you square that with, you know, the idea that the culture is going to to change. But yeah, I, right. I, to answer your question, I do think that it, you can really draw the the line back to, you know, Gretchen Carlson coming forward. Imagine how much and there is a specific number and I think it's I, I can't remember what the annual number is, but imagine how much money, how much revenue you have to bring in and how much the face of the network you have to be for it to be fine. That the, your employer has paid out thirteen million dollars in settlements. Yeah, I mean, and, and that was a staggering, and, and it's worth it, to and you. it's worth it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that yeah. was a point that a lot of people had made within Fox News, which is if this was anybody else, this guy would have been out of here so long ago. I mean, even with the old boys culture over there, it, it, the fact that this was O'Reilly and he was the king of the network, invincible, because uh, he is good. I mean, that's the you know, he make you angry. Or happy, I suppose, but he uh, he is he is good on television, right? Right, and and has been for a long time. a long time. So it'll be interesting because you know when Megyn Kelly left, there was a, a lot of talk. Now she's nothing, not not as big a star. <laughs> she's nothing. No, no, she's not nothing. She's not, in terms of rate, like ratings and like just yeah. sort of, um, she's not as big of a of a cash cow as O'Reilly was. But Tucker Carlson, who is now assuming O'Reilly's spot, assumed uh, her spot, and he was handpicked by Rupert Murdoch. And, you know, he now we're in this environment where everyone's watching political television and, you know, the Trump phenomenon is happening and everyone's really glued to their television. But the ratings skyrocketed. So it'll be very interesting to see if Tucker can do the same thing or at least at least match. I mean, that is something that everyone at every media reporter will be closely watching is just like the ratings now of that of that and how they fill out the rest of their It should be said, though. They've got a couple open hours now, basically. Right, and like uh, the 9 p.m. hour at um, MSNBC, like Maddow, for the first time, started to beat O'Reilly in um, the 25 to 54-year-old demographic, which is like the key cable news demographic. It's the demo. It's the demo for, for, uh, so to speak, for advertisers and cable news. So um, that's something that people will be closely watching as well. So I guess my question is, how much does O'Reilly leaving uh, affect the way Republicans view Fox News? When Ailes left Fox, that was a big deal politically because Ailes built the network. And that is a huge deal for the Republican Party and the way politics is talked about culturally. Bill O'Reilly, an important piece of that, but the network is the network and somebody makes the decisions above. He is an incredible broadcaster, but and some of his fans will be upset. But, you know, people we talked to in the White House weren't were kind of like, well, it's not Hannity who kind of yeah. Hannity, yeah, Hannity so I, is often the most pro Trump. It's definitely interesting. He's a he's a he's a huge figure. But I, maybe it also speaks to just how the conservative media landscape has changed, that maybe if this had happened a decade ago in, in, in a you know, different administration, that it would have been. Uh, it would have maybe changed the media landscape more. Um, but no, I, I think, I mean, it is interesting that Trump defended him and, and Trump said, you know, he shouldn't have settled. And and he he made a similar comment about Ailes. So like Trump's kind of 0 for 2 on, you know, Fox News sexual harassment. But scandals. I also think Trump would never <laughs> settle anything if he 
if he I mean well, he, Trump always says I would never settle and then he settles right. so that's that's his that's, that's his purview on life yeah is not to settle I don't think that settle. I don't think that the White House we and people that we've talked to in the White House necessarily care about uh, O'Reilly's ouster um, I think that to your point Catherine if Hannity left that, that might be a bigger deal because he's seen as and is a much bigger booster of just like Trump's message all right thanks Stephen thanks The last few weeks, there's been a lot of debate about how seriously we should take the special elections in Kansas and Georgia, Montana. Uh, so we wanted to talk a little bit about this as special elections in, in the era of Trump have become really a national phenomenon. But I hold the opinion that I don't think they are this sort of national harbinger for things to come as a lot of people are arguing they are why uh, <laughs> because it, it's like every every side looks and sees you know if my side is winning it means everything and if my side is losing it means nothing if you look at it one way it's an old lady if it's another way it's a young girl right and <laughs> and and if you dump you know eight to ten million dollars into a race well so it was john ossoff in, in in georgia this week you know he raised eight million dollars he came up short in the jungle primary which means he's going to a runoff with the republican karen handel in june so there's probably going to be another 20 million dumped into that race and my guess even though i should really never predict things ever is that Handel, who's pretty popular in the district, which is pretty conservative. I mean, she's not that out of line with the guy who used to represent the district, Tom Price. She's going to win, I think, and everything will be back to normal. To play devil's advocate on this position, and because I'm oft, uh, often not somebody who wants to read a whole lot into small data sets, but one of the interesting things is, you know, this other this other special election, we the Kansas one that was last week, we had the Georgia one this week. In about a month, we have Montana, and then there's the Virginia primaries. South, South Carolina. South Carolina governor's thing. That'll be like a Republican thing. And then there's also a uh, L.A. race that will be uh, two Democrats. But so with Kansas last week, Georgia this week, the kind of the kind of interesting thing is that Kansas district is really, really conservative. Nate Silver's been talking a little bit about this, which is that it, it's it's like a district in Alabama. It's just incredibly red district and always has been. And, you know, this Republican won it, well, won it by seven points. And, and usually somebody wins it by about 20, 25. Uh, this district in Georgia, a little bit not not as great of a sign. And for Democrats, these are the kinds of districts. They're suburban. They're college educated. They're pretty affluent. These yeah. are the kinds of districts that they need to win in next year to, to have like a house, to flip the house. Right. But, you know, there's a lot more bluer districts that are held by Republicans than that Georgia that Georgia district. And this 30-year-old guy almost won it. <laughs> if you're trying to think about how the next year looks and how like you're going to recruit candidates and raise money and think about these races next year, it's not a good sign for you to be performing way worse than what you expect to be performing. I hear that. I'm just a little skeptical after years and years of covering midterms and hearing that, you know. Yeah, but midterms, usually you get a flip. 
or not a flip necessarily, but you know the the party in the White House almost always loses. That's true. With like, I haven't the, the exception of two year two times in the last like ten or something like that. The party out of power out of the White House has picked up seats in the midterms. Right. I just don't know that we can guess what is going to happen from the midterms based on Kansas, Georgia, Montana. The one interesting thing is these. These, this Georgia district, they actually haven't talked very much about Trump at all because it's a kind of a dicey proposition to actually, you know, it's like, well, do I attack Trump? Do I defend Trump? He's very unpopular. What do I actually do? All of the ads basically are going to be, I mean, like Karen Handel and John Ossoff are basically going to tear each other apart. It's going to be really ugly. But yeah, she everyone did will hate much them by the end. Much, of this, <laughs> much to my much to my surprise, she came out the morning after the special election thank you donald trump for the yeah, call yeah that's a tweet and uh you know hope you come campaign with me that's a tweet though i think for the most if you look at the ads that they're both running it's basically just like a tearing into each of them and then democrats will use her sort of controversial pro-life history against her for national fundraising and then probably in the district as like an old guard politician uh, and then john ossoff will be portrayed as like the guy who doesn't live in the district, who's like Mr. Hollywood, who's probably tied with Nancy Pelosi because it's a very Republican district. And it will play out like a normal Republican Democratic race. But the whole context is kind of how how are people going to behave in the era of Trump? And what did Handel say when she was signing off from her speech? Let's go. Let's go kick some ass off. Uh, <laughs> well, that's the ass off thing is like the whole their whole deal is the voter ass off. Oh, right. Put your ass yeah. off for ass off or whatever. It's like, it's, ah. If so, I was a voter in that district, I would just not want to turn on my TV or my radio really ever again. There is nothing more important to our country than our national security. And I'm getting scared. Yeah. And communities safe. Georgians need a congressman they can trust. Clearly, that is not out of touch. Out of town, John Ossoff. The uh, the image in this ad for the national security, it's like the stock footage of people standing in front of a computer screen. And it's these it, it looks no way like people defending our national security. It looks like people watching like <laughs> the security cams at Target. The best. And I also always enjoy that voice that they do. It's like a very concern. It's like the, the essence of concern trolling. Where it's like Karen Handel likes the chain smokers <laughs> and then it's like spiking music and anyway everyone's just gonna hate both of these people by the end so now we have on the line charlie warzel charlie how are you doing i am uh, i'm getting by here i'm getting by and where are you exactly so I am in austin texas right now i'm actually calling you from the travis county uh courthouse where um, America's favorite conspiracy theorist, Alex Jones, is currently involved in a 10-day custody trial with his ex-wife. And why are you there, Charlie? <laughs> um, it's a custody trial, which seems like that would be like a... Yeah, exactly. And, and, and that should probably speak to how in the weeds I am at the moment. But um, so to back up a bit, uh, Alex Jones is a um, a really well-known conspiracy theorist and TV and radio personality who is very instrumental in uh, the 9-11 truther movement and I guess most 
incendiary. He uh, he was also a Sandy Hook truther, so uh, he believed that, that 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 tragedy was sort of staged by the government. I believe. So essentially, what's going on here is kind of this remarkable thing where uh, where Alex in his custody trial. Um, it, his lawyer's defense for the reason why he should retain custody of his three children is that uh, is that a lot of the um, the sort of more salacious rants and uh, sort of anti-government screeds and the tearing his shirt off and, and the wild stuff that he's really known for and that he's become like an icon for, um, they're saying that that's performance art, essentially, or political satire is the uh, is the other phrase that they've used. So, so this trial is actually this very fascinating sort of examination of this person who is just known for being kind of this crackpot thinker, and and it's really sort of a a bit of a referendum on 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 what he really believed. Today he testified, right? He's been on the stands now for the better part of uh, of a day. It's bled into a second day fully, and and it's been like a, a, an incredible roller coaster ride. He is not somebody <laughs> who he is not somebody who hides his emotions. That is probably what he is most famous for. He sort of like he doesn't even really wear them on his sleeve. He sort of wears them outside of his body. Um, and, <laughs> they walk and around so next it, to him. Yeah, exactly. They are in they are in their own with their own sleeves um but he he is um he's been just incredibly uh it's very easy to rile him up and and especially today during his cross-examination he's been uh asked a lot about um you know his his tactics and about uh you know what it is that he truly believes and and he's he's been very combative um at one point about two hours ago he sort of broke down uh, a little bit and was on the verge of tears, kind of choking them back, saying that this was, you know, this is, wasn't well, his words, but a witch hunt. He said, uh, I, I believe the quote was that they are spinning and twisting his words and the media is, is reporting on it. Uh, he seems to be really, really upset with the, the media coverage. Uh, and there happen to be a few other reporters in the room who are, who are sort of feasting on the details in the same way that, uh, that we are. Like, I know the lawyer's argument is that that it's performance art has he how what has he said about that or what did he say about that today he has said that he agrees with his lawyer's premise quote in general but that the media is really the true um the true sort of misinformation uh vector here and they're spinning this to say that everything he does is performance art he uh said on the stand today that 90 percent of Infowars, which is his company um, and his radio show and television broadcast, uh, that 90% of that is uh, hard news. And the other part is satire. You watch a lot of it. You actually like listen to Infowars like every, like every day, right? As an, as an observer for my job. Yes. Yeah. I know. I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. That an important clarification. Like but what do you think about the 90% is hard news as like a regular consumer? I think the point that he makes is actually, in some ways, way more relative than the media is giving credit, which is that he is sort of to sort of suss out whether he believes this or whether he doesn't or whether this is all hard news or whatever. He is really a hybrid person. He is, you know, a, a, a multifaceted person who is like blending his what he believes as you know this news, taking a kernel of truth and sort of you know sensationalizing it. And injecting it with that sort of like 
that punditry, but also with that, I mean, you know, sort of, I guess, what he would call satire. So I think that that categorization of 90% hard news is, is, is false, but it's not so clear that in his mind that's not actually how it exists. Has his Sandy Hook trutherism come up at all? Um, this seems relevant to that idea. Uh, it has not. And so uh, one of the, the things, I mean, at the heart of this case is is three children, and, and it is, you know, sort of this this personal matter. But, um, and, and, and because of that, the judge has tried to completely separate Alex's politics from his ability to be a parent. And, and that sort of is in itself a really interesting part of this trial that it, it's almost impossible to disentangle politics from Alex. Alex broadcasts from, you know, we'll put a YouTube video up as he's driving to, you know, uh, you know, go to get groceries or from his house. He's sort of constantly producing content and it's constantly of a political nature. So there's not really, he does a good job of not putting any boundary between himself and his politics. So anyway, to answer your question, a lot of, a lot of his most political videos and clips that his ex-wife's attorney tried to submit in evidence were ultimately rejected by the judge. So the things that are there are more uh, Alex being potentially allegedly intoxicated on camera in an in InfoWars capacity or, you know, Alex saying something. Um, it, there's one clip that was shown uh, the other day. I was about two feet away from him when they showed it, um, of him stripping down out of his pants and out of his shirt, just in his underwear, uh, hawking male vitality pills that he sells. So again, am I a beach body? No. Am I Tarzan? No. Am I, you know, some Olympic swimmer? No. The point is I'm a big guy. I got big muscles. I've always been strong. And I've got that in between. It's a real bodies. emotional journey to, uh, to <laughs> watch Alex's face watching himself shirtless can, and pantsless. Can you tell me a little bit about um, how chili has played a role in this trial? And I'm talking about the food. You bet I can. The, the food that one you consumes bet I can. beans and meat. Though I guess if yeah. we're in Texas, it's no beans. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, it chili does have an outsized role in in this whole process, uh, which, which which speaks to sort of how surreal this trial can be at times. You know, when you're dealing with someone like Alex, it's uh, it, it's very rare that things will go as planned. Um, apparently, during a, a deposition he gave back in March for this case, uh, he was asked about um, the, some of his teachers, his children's teachers, uh, and he couldn't recall their names. And the uh, the lawyers asked well, why don't you remember the names of any of the kids' teachers? And he said, you'll have to excuse me, had a big old bowl of chili right before I got here, and I can't remember. And the lawyer said, so chili affects your memory. And I don't, I'm going to butcher the exact quote, but it was something like, yes, sir, big old bowl of chili. (laughs) (laughs) So um, at the heart of it, this is sort of a really fascinating media spectacle and it sort of surrounds all of 2017 and 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 the sort of the the natures of like like fake news and um you know really really polarized and part of that is it's sort of everything there the question is is whether if alex jones the infowars host is sort of a character that alex jones the person plays because if he doesn't believe all of the things that he necessarily says does what where does that leave his listeners who who may in earnest really trust him as an arbiter of information and that kind of puts us right. in that space you know of of like what is 
what is real and what is fake and what is somewhere in between. Nationally, as a, as consumers of media and people in the news, you know, there's this distrust at, at the heart of, you know, of, of all media that's being consumed, whether it's real, whether it's fake, whether the people behind it have an agenda. And this is sort of this really fascinating opportunity to sort of under oath examine that on somebody. And, that, and, that, and while that's not what this trial is at heart, at its core about, it's really how it's going to be interpreted by you know everyone who's watching at home. Have you had any interactions with him? We have stared in uh, into each other's eyes um, <laughs> for 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 a long time, and 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 as sort of the, there's been more media attention and it's mounting, you can see he's very resentful of it. Um, he walked past me today uh, as well, I was. Wouldn't you be? As I was filing a story. I mean, I realize he's a media figure, but like I would if I were in a custody hearing absolutely a custody absolutely. trial it's, it's difficult for sure and that and there is that element to this that is that is sensitive and 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 i think it's something i've been thinking about in, in the way that i try to cover it but at the same time this is a, a person who is has made his name as someone who is extremely confrontational as a reporter or journalist or you know filmmaker or whatever pundit whatever you want to call him in every capacity, he he goes places where he's not supposed to go. He gets in front of people's faces. He injects himself into really personal family things like Sandy Hook, um, right. where he got, you know, in into the sort of the faces of, of people who'd lost their, their children. So there is sort of this double standard, perhaps, uh, as I see it. Um, but I think more than anything else, the frustrating thing for him is he's very limited right now on the stand about what he can respond to, how he can say he you know, has to address questions, yes or no. He can't speak to the press. He's barred from speaking in a, he can't do his show on his show. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I think he feels that he's the center of this media storm right now. And he's kind of, uh, he's gagged. And I, and I think that, I think that that for someone like him has to be just excruciating. So I think that's where the biggest frustration lies. So Charlie, how how much longer are you there and what you know, what do you think like the conclusion of this is going to be? Yeah, so there's a whole second week that's going to play out next week. Um I I think at the end of the, what what we're going to hopefully see is more from from our perspective is more of an examination of who a person like this really is and, and, and sort of, you know, what, what a sensationalist broadcast personality really does believe. Um, I, I don't think that'll be conclusive, but I think we'll get more insight into it. And, uh, and I, I imagine it will also be for people who are, you know, watching tweets along at home. I'm, I'm sure it'll be very entertaining. All right. Well, thanks, Charlie. I hope you uh, make it out of Austin alive and, eat a lot of barbecue i i plan on it thanks guys i'll talk to you soon no one knows anything is produced by meg kramer and eleanor kagan shows edited by our very own Catherine miller production support comes from agaranesh ashagre and veronica doolin our music is by beauty pill you can find us on twitter at kate nocera and Catherine miller